Good morning. How is everyone today? Doing well. Awesome. Glad to hear it. We are continuing our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you haven't already opened your Bible or your, your smartphone to Ecclesiastes, please do that now. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7, 4 verse 7 through 5 verse 7. And we're going to be looking at this as our title. Do you have time for people? So to start us out, I would like to um, have you just consider that question there on the page. This slide was just slipped in here. Uh, remember Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, that's the teacher. Um, and so we've got Solomon sharing his wisdom with us again, um, giving us his lessons. So how much time do you spend with people? At your table, discuss that question, how much time do you spend with people? And then uh, come to a conclusion. Are you happy with your answer? Or do you need to try to make some changes? So, take a minute or two and discuss that at your table. All right, so who would like to start out the conversation? How much time do you spend with people? Gave you a chance to maybe assess your schedule a little bit here this morning. Please.
Okay. Else want to share their their thoughts about spending time with people? Hi, my name is Chris. I um, just getting over some health difficulties, and um, really happy to be joining the community of Christ here, and uh, great enjoy. So, um, kind of coming out of an isolation of a few years, um, the sun is up. <laughs> That's two-way street, Chris. We're happy to have you. <laughs> it's kind of an unfair question on the heels of a pandemic, right? Asking people how much time do you spend with people because there's still different levels of comfort and different levels of opportunity as uh, social gatherings maybe are still shut down. Or um, How about that second question? How do you feel about it? How do you feel about your answer? Do you feel like there may be needs to be some changes? Or are you happy? Maybe you're happy with the amount of time you spend with people. Katie, what do you think? That doesn't sound selfish at all. Finding a proper balance uh, of what's the sweet spot uh, where you have time for yourself, uh, but also then enough time to be able to interact and have relationships. Um, someone in the previous session uh, talked about meaningful relationships. So it's more than just spending time, but spending quality time, right? And, and uh, you know that as parent or employer or whatever vocation God has, has put you in, that in a lot of ways, you know, spending 10 minutes of quality time with someone that you have a relationship could be way better than two hours of just time, right? You're going to sit and watch a movie on the same couch as someone uh, is not going to connect you nearly as well as playing a card game or, or having a 15-minute conversation with that person or, or doing something fun together. Um, so recognizing the opportunities that we have to spend time with other people, to make connections, to build relationships, and then to be able to spend quality time um, is, a, is a really important and, and a, really a blessing that God enables us to have. And then we as a Christian community recognize the blessing of, of spending time together here in a Christian community. Pastor Strong uh, just preached about that and shared with us and reminded us of the blessings that we have there. 
Uh, but it also allows us to look at this whole spending time with other people concept with uh, some different lenses on as well. We can build relationships knowing that um, shared interests are, are what build, builds relationships and brings people and people groups together. Um, we can also celebrate and share the biggest interest we have, uh, that faith in Christ Jesus as Savior, um, can be something that we use to bring people together uh, and something that we maximize relationships that God's blessed us with to look for opportunities to, to share that most important gospel message. Okay, let's jump in then to section number one. We're going to do Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun, and I'm going to take a break already to just remind you that these are some highlights from um, some thematic sections of, of the whole book. Remember, we talked about under the sun is Solomon's way of talking about things within the physical realm. Um, and he calls them meaningless, which is a recurring theme, that breath, their wind, they're here and then disappear. They don't have lasting impact or value. Um, he says that, and he says everything is meaningless under the sun. Everything in this physical world is just temporary and it's just fleeting until it has a connection to something eternal and something significant, right? Um, so you could say that about our relationships. Um, if I've got a golf buddy and that's all I ever do is talk golf and, and I never get a chance for that conversation to go to something spiritual, uh, it's a missed opportunity for gospel outreach um, and it turns that relationship into something that's not really all that important, right? If, if golf is the deepest we ever get, <laughs> uh, that, that's, not, that's not a super profound relationship. Um, so Solomon here already in, in the very first verse that we're talking about is putting two of these concepts back into the forefront of our minds, um, under the sun and meaningless. Okay, let's go back. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother there was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. All right. What's the connection between the beginning of verse 8 and the end? And I don't really mean the end as much as the, sec the end of the first half. So... For whom am I toiling? That quote, let's pretend that's not there. And so what's the connection of the first half of the verse um, to itself? There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Can you put that into your own words? What's the connection between um, 
loneliness and wealth? That's really the question I'm asking. Loneliness and the pursuit of wealth. What's Solomon trying to say? Okay. All the wealth in the world, if you have no one to share it with, if you have no one to bless with it, then you're still going to just be by yourself, right? You're still just going to be alone. Okay? Anyone else? Okay. If this world is all it's about and what I can chase after, be that wealth or power or fame or whatever, if that's all the further it goes, then yeah, I, I'm pretty hollow and empty and, and really all by my, myself, lonely and sad. Yeah, very well said. This concept of contentment is one that uh, we've talked about before. Um, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Um, this is something that our culture in America struggles with, right? We feel like happiness is just over the next hill, right? I just get the next promotion. I just get uh, a couple extra thousand in my bank account. I just get that safety net just a little bit bigger. Um, I, just, I just hole away a little bit more for retirement, and then I'll be happy. Uh, I just get, get the next raise so that I can have a little bit more monthly income, and then that's when happiness is going to come. The toil never ends. There's no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. It was always pursuing more, and, and, and he ended up being farther away from the goal as he toiled and strove towards wealth. Katie. Sure. Yeah, I think I just pour wealth into the stream and eventually my bank account lake, uh, eventually it'll have enough, right? But it just doesn't seem to work that way because there's always another hill. <laughs> there's always something else that I don't have that I really want to have. There's, there's always this pursuit. Um, very rarely does a person say, ah, I've arrived. Ah, I have everything I need and I'm so happy. Contentment is just so... It's like uh, some of those memes you see where something's dangling in front of someone and they almost got it and then it, it moves away. Um, contentment seems to be that way. We think that we can get it if we just add this to where I am and then we, get, we add that and then, oh, but maybe we could just get this. And, oh, eventually we're walking step by step, right? Contentment is not about gaining more things. It's about gaining a, a mindset, a heart set, an attitude about the things that I do have. It's about recognizing that God has given me precisely what is best for me and that God has put me precisely where he wants me to be um, and that God's promises ring true for me every single day whether I see it or not, whether I have what others have or not. Um, I, I can be content with the life that God's given me, and I can seek to bring him glory and honor and praise every single day. Okay?
Can you think of an example of a person who fits this description? Who's on a constant pursuit for wealth, whose toil never stops, and yet they find themselves all alone? Okay. <laughs> all right. Or, or any other athlete, right? Um, or I should, shouldn't say any. Yeah, myself for sure. Okay. Right. This, the, the culture that we live in says that the professional athletes or the movie stars, they've got the money and they've got the, the glamorous lifestyles and they've got happiness. Um, and then you read stories about what actually is happening in their homes with their children. Um, and it doesn't seem so glamorous anymore. Um, We've got this idea, and it comes from our lack of contentment. If we just get a little more money, like, or if we, just, if we had the income that that guy had, oh man, we would be happy. We would know how to use it. Um, but it's just not true. Money doesn't buy happiness. That's the, that's the English proverb, um, and it's so true. And Chris, thank you for, for your uh, openness to be able to admit this is your story, it's my story too. Um, that we, this materialism, this constant, whether it's money or even something else, just this constant chasing after the next thing so that I can, then I can be happy. Um, my sinful nature is never gonna be content. Um, think of Solomon who writes these words. And remember a lot of this uh, book is reflection on his life, uh, drawing to a close, reflection on his life experience he chased after wealth, um, and in a lot of times the wealth just got dumped on him as the king of the most powerful nation on earth. Uh, he had all the things that the world would have said, that guy's got to be happy. 300 wives, 700 concubines, uh, and yet he can call himself lonely. Because there's a guy that didn't have time to be lonely, but he didn't have any meaningful relationships. He had everything that the world had to offer and he had nothing all at the same time. And he can call that life meaningless. That's just, that, was all un, that was all under the sun garbage because it didn't draw me closer to my savior. In fact, it pushed me further away. Um, a miserable business. You can't help but see the personal self-reflection of Solomon as he talks about the fleeting joys of this world and the hollow promises of, of what this world has to offer. Okay. What are the four benefits of companionship that the teacher presents for us? Expand on your answer and discuss how you might serve another in that way. So, verses 9 through 12 there is one benefit, one blessing of companionship in each of those verses. Let's start with verse 9. Describe the blessing of companionship that's presented for us in verse 9. Okay. 
Very good. Cooperation um, is the word that I use to describe that. It's better to have two people working on something than one. It's better to have three than two. Um, <laughs> it's better to be able to work together than to be lonely. Okay. Verse 10. Okay, support. Very good. I said help in need. Same thing. Uh, to be able to have that support, to be able to have someone that can help you when you are in need. Um, it's certainly a blessing of companionship. Uh, when you fall, someone's there to pick you up. Um, how about verse 11? Blessing of companionship. Kenny. Okay, comfort, warmth, literally here, um, to be able to warm one another, to be able to provide comfort for one another. And how about verse 12, blessing of companionship? Okay, that there is strength, that there is the ability to provide a defense for one another. Um, excellent. What are some ways that this service has been offered to you or that you could potentially offer someone else the benefit of companionship in these ways? I think some of these are literal. Some of these are, uh, have some figurative understandings as well. How do we apply this? Solomon's words about companionship. Okay, but you can be available to serve any of these needs, right? To help someone when they're in need, to work together with them, um, to offer them the warmth of companionship, whether that's a, a literal physical hug that you might give someone uh, who you know needs it, or maybe it's a warm demeanor, warm uh, personality, or, or encouraging warm words that you might offer. Okay. Some other ways we maybe could apply these words into our relationships. Katie. be able to defend or support whether they're there or, or not. Um, yep. Very good. Is Ecclesiastes 4 verse 12 Speaking about marriage. Lori. It's about all relationships. 
I think that's a fair answer. That was actually a question that I was asking you because I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like the way you stated that, Laurie, that um, there's some applications. Uh, perhaps you've heard a sermon preached. Maybe it was your wedding text, this cord of three strands. Uh, that's preached often at weddings to talk about a husband and a wife and then Christ in the middle uh, becomes that which ties them together and it's hard to pull them apart when Jesus is woven through every aspect of their lives. Um, I think that's a fair application. Right, what's, what's wrong with me? Right. Very well said. I think it's important that we not pigeonhole this to be only marriage because of what you said. Then these become discouraging words to someone who hasn't been blessed with, um, with that relationship at this point in their lives. Um, yeah, Paul certainly says, he says it the other way, right? He says the single life is actually better, but I understand that not everyone has been given this gift. Um, so I, it's important to recognize that these blessings are broadly about companionship and not specifically about a marriage. Um, Verse 11, I think, does open the door for marriage to be a good application here. When two lie down together, uh, they keep each other warm. Um, That seems to be, at least the literal rendering of these words, seems to be uh, something that is specific to one type of relationship and uh, maybe not uh, the same. I don't know, too many football buddies that sit on the couch and share a blanket and keep each other warm while the game is on. Um, Although, whatever, if that's your thing, that's fine. Um, (laughs) But typically, that warmth relationship, I think you could see this is a door opening for for at least the application within a marriage, right? Not that the court of three strands thing can't be applied in any other way, uh, because it can this is, so there's a couple of things going on here, and I think it'd be worth just exploring the fullness of this verse. Um, one is this sequence of patterns of numbers in Hebrew. Um, that's something that we don't always see or might even look a little goofy, um, but it was something that would have significance in the, the Hebrew reader's um, eyes and mind, that they would see when a progression of numbers is given, that shows uh, working towards completeness, that shows um, an advancement. So here you've got, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's this pattern from one to two to something that's actually pretty strong in a three chord string. So if there's just one, one little piece of yarn, you could yank that apart. You take one little piece of yarn and you wrap another piece around it, it's a little stronger probably still can break it. If you do a perfect tight weave of three strands that are together and pull it tight, and now that's going to be pretty hard to pull apart. So, yes, the application is true that when Christ ties a husband and wife together, it's hard for that to be pulled apart. 
uh, but you could say that about other relationships too. You've got this pattern one, two, three. In Amos, the prophet Amos chapter one and two, um, he talks about, um, he uses the number three and then the number four. He says, three things, three sins I detest, four um, I abhor. It's something along those lines. And we look at that like, what? God's talking about three sins and four sins? What in the world is going on here? But it's that Hebrew progression where you go from three to four. Uh, six and seven um, is, is something that it becomes a, a picturesque advancement from one to the next. I did take a few notes down of, of places in the Old Testament where this occurs. And then I put that note in a safe place. And now I don't have it. So <laughs> if you're curious about those, you email me and I'll send it to you. Um, but it is, this is not the only place in Scripture where you can see a pattern of numbers that are there deliberately, right? This could have been one may be overpowered, seven can defend themselves, a cord of 14 strands. But the, the idea is that there's this progression, this, this systematic from one to two to three, um, showing going from weakness to strength. So... How could you use this section of scripture to encourage a friend who has been straying away from public worship? Chris. Yeah, definitely. There's the, this is a command that God gives us, and so this is wrong to not be worshiping. But let's look at the benefit for you, right? To be able to tie yourself together with fellow Christians and to be able to encourage one another and be encouraged. Um, Hebrews 10, 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. It doesn't, it's not easier to live in this world. It's getting harder. Judgment Day is approaching. It's getting closer and closer. All the more reason for us to be together. All the more reason for us to be in God's house. All the more reason for us to tie each other together and to be stronger together. Um, makes me think of the analogy from, uh, from the wild where it's the wounded animal that strays from the herd that becomes the prey. Right, um, and, and you can see stories of some herd animals when they know that one of, of them is wounded, they'll circle around them and they'll become this strength barrier to pr protect the wounded from becoming prey. That same thing is true spiritually. Uh, the, the wounded ones, the ones that are, are weak, the ones that remove themselves from the pack, they're the ones that become easy prey for the devil. That's the devil's first thing. His first, he's probably not going to get a person to just go from being every Sunday faithful Christian, outspoken follower of Jesus to wake up one day and deny Christ. Probably not going to happen. But if he can plant in your mind temptations and excuses and reasons for you to be removed from the herd, further and further away from the life source, eventually that'll just happen on its own. 
eventually you become that prey. So the strength that we have in community, the strength that we have in, in being a family of believers, um, and that should, should reinforce for us this passion to bring the straying back into the fold. Let's, let's circle our straying uh, and be the strength that they need to prevent them from becoming prey. All right. Next section is verses 13 through 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I know that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Okay, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Do you agree with that statement? Caddy? I think, yeah, it ties in with, um, with a lot of what Solomon has been saying, that when there's not this spiritual connection, then it's meaningless. I think that's true. Everything that you said is true. I think there's some, some truth to this statement, even, even apart from a spiritual component. In what way, even secularly and, and here on earth, is it better to be poor but wise youth than old and foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning? Most definitely, if this is spiritual wisdom, yes. Um, and there's even connections to being poor on earth and rich in, in heaven. But I think even just physically, Poverty and youth is poverty and youth with wisdom is better than sure, so age and power with folly. Someone in the last section mentioned, think of what a, a foolish king can do with his power. A foolish king who has the power to make life miserable um, 
it can make a royal mess out of things. Uh, it would be better to be inexperienced, but wise enough not to make those mistakes. Wise enough to not chase after things that end up being foolish. So, so wisdom is the greatest of the blessings that we're talking about here. Some of, the, some of the comments that, that Giannis has made have been just remarkable because you don't hear athletes talk that way and, and especially you don't hear young people talk that way. So to have someone who's got the spotlight and the microphone and to use it in such a humble way with such a wholesome message, um, yeah, that really is refreshing. Chris. As a person who's been both, You're taking us to our next question. Sorry. No, you're good. Don't, no, 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 no. That's a great transition. Rags to riches stories from the Bible or from the secular world. Eric, you had a great one. Giannis is a rags to riches story, right? Uh, that he would be 
someone who did, couldn't even afford a pair of shoes, and now he's NBA champion and a super max NBA deal, uh, a cool story, and how it hasn't impacted him in a negative way. Um, can you think of some other rags to riches stories? King David. King David was a rags to riches. He was the little shepherd boy. Um, he was out doing the, the, the tasks while the older brothers were there for Samuel to pick a king. But man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, David was the one that he chose. The shepherd boy was going to be the leader. Sure. Okay. Right. Okay. Did the opposite, yeah? Rags the Riches story? Was your hand up? Okay, Joseph would be a great one. Um, he went from the, the rock bottom in the, in the cistern, sold into slavery, prison, to becoming uh, second in command in, in all the nation of Egypt. Um, a Rags the Riches story. And the best one of all, Chris, you mentioned it before, uh, Jesus, right? Born in a manger, born in humility, uh, willing to take on the rags of our human flesh. Um, so that he could share riches with us, so that we could uh, have the glories of heaven. All right. Let's go on to the next section. That is chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. The dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. What pronoun makes its first real appearance in chapter 5? verse 1, and why is that significant? An English lesson here, which are the pronouns in chapter 5, verse 1? You! That's the one I'm talking about. There's your... Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This is the first time that that word uh, really appears in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There's one other occurrence, but it doesn't count. That's chapter 2, verse 1. That's Solomon talking to himself, saying, here's what you should do. So he, that's really a me. <laughs> that's really Solomon still talking about himself. Five chapters before it turns into, now here's what you can do with this. Here's a message for you, which I think is significant. It changes the, the tenor and tone just a bit. There's applications that are beginning to be made. 
um, for us as individuals as we read the book. Um, chapter 5, verse 1, kind of significant that it takes that long uh, before. So Solomon lays out his case about the meaningless of things under the sun, and now here's what you can do with it. There's something else that changes the tune just a bit um, from what we've seen in the rest of the book here, and that's the next question. Uh, shift in focus from what Solomon has spoken before. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This has not been a concept that's been brought up yet. Solomon has been talking about physical, the physical realm, everything um, here under the sun. Now he's, he's turning it into a spiritual conversation, right? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So we, the concept of bringing up worship um, at all is, is unique and new uh, at this thus far in the book of Ecclesiastes. The house of God that Solomon's talking about is, of course, the temple that he was privileged to build. Um, and then one more concept out of this verse, the sacrifice of fools. What's being talked about there? Caddy. Okay, going through the motions uh, without there being meaning, without there being a heart that's being given to the Lord. For sure, a sacrifice of fools. What else? Thinking that you doing the sacrifice is what gains you forgiveness or peace with God. Okay. Excellent. Uh, that it's not me, it's not my actions that's earning God's favor, but rather it's God's favor that's allowing me to carry out the sacrifice. Okay? Specifically within the context of this verse, we're told that the sacrifice of fools is go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So I offer a sacrifice of fools when I close my ears to what God has to say. I go to the house of God, but if I'm not careful, I close my ears and I just do what I want to do and hear what I want to hear. Um, Solomon says that's a sacrifice of fools. Doesn't have to necessarily be a literal sacrifice, but it did make me think of this account in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, that is Samuel, the prophet and priest there uh, in the white hair and beard, and he's speaking with King Saul. The story that, that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is waiting for Samuel to arrive because they want to offer a sacrifice before they move on and go out into battle. And Samuel gets delayed and he's not there as quickly as um, Saul wants him to be. And so Saul decides that he's going to offer the sacrifice instead. Um, then Samuel arrives and he um, is disgusted by the fact that Saul would think that it was his place to offer a sacrifice. That was the priests that did that. That was the, the ones that God had appointed to be the ones that would offer the sacrifices. It was not the job of the king to sacrifice. 
this would be a sacrifice of fools. Um, Saul felt like this is our magic formula. This is the, uh, the ritual that we do, the good luck charm, so that we'll win the battle. Um, Saul had this attitude like God must really love dead animals. And so as long as the animal's dead, then God's going to be happy, right? He's closing his ears to God's commands and just going through the motions and thinking that that's how God's going to be pleased. And Samuel comes and delivers that message. No way, Saul. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The reason that God was pleased with the sacrifices is because they were carried out according to his command. They were expressions of worship. That was what made them the pleasing aroma in God's nostrils. When Saul offers this unauthorized sacrifice, that's just the slaughter of animals. It's, it's just a meaningless, it's actually an act of defiance and disobedience, and it's the opposite. It's a stench in God's nostrils. If you read this whole account, uh, you'll find out exactly how God felt about it. Um, God tells Samuel, or God tells Saul through Samuel, immediately following um, that God is taking the kingdom away from Saul because of this action. Because he's got his ears closed to God and not following his way, God's going to yank the kingdom from his grasp. Um, God feels pretty strongly about the words that he has to say, the commands that he issues, and how his leaders deal with, with those commands. So, Saul here offered a sacrifice of fools. I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry, I just have a question. Yeah, please. No, you're fine. So a sacrifice is when I give something up in order to like give it to God. So the burnt offering, there was a there was a whole burnt offering. A lot of the sacrifices, parts would be given to the priests and then parts given to God. There was the whole burnt offering where the whole animal was consumed in fire. And the picture of that was this is going entirely to God. And then the reason that fire was used is because smoke goes up. So you'd have this, this uh, animal would be consumed by the fire and the smoke would go up. And that was, that was the way of saying that this was dedicated to the Lord. Like we're giving it to him. God doesn't need oxen. He doesn't need steak. God doesn't, isn't waiting for us to give him those things. But it's the sacrifice. It's the I'm willing to do without it because I want God to have it instead, that that's where it becomes an act of worship. So then the closing of the ears becoming a sacrifice of the foolish is that they're giving up the word of God? So like saying, like, I don't need that, I'm giving it up. I, I wouldn't so much say, I would say it's, the foolish part of it is that it's not, it's impossible to give something to God in a way that pleases him if I'm closing my ears to how to please him. So, um, not so much that the sacrifice, it'd be the same thing of like, I'm going to go, I don't know, fill in the blank, do this action, and it's going to be to honor God. 
But if I'm totally ignorant and closing my ears to everything that God wants, that's foolish. And it's foolish for me to give something up and think that God's going to be pleased about it if I'm stubbornly and defiantly closing my ears to the way that he wants me to live. So I'm going to give up using black pens as a way to worship my God. Like, well, God's never said that. (laughs) So... That's a sacrifice. I'm not really making a sacrifice, and that's a foolish thing because that's a silly example. But um, so, not so much that there's that the sacrifice itself is foolish, but it's foolish to be making, uh, to be doing anything in a quest to serve God um, without having our ears in tune with what his demands and desires are. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Okay. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. How do you jive that statement with a statement like Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where he says, pray continually. If God's in heaven and I'm on earth and that means I should zip it, um, how come Paul tells me I should be constantly living a life of prayer? Lori. Okay. Yeah, that's well said. Um, what parent hasn't told their child, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason, you should listen more than you speak, right? Um, that is, I think, what God's kind of saying here. When we approach God, the God of the universe, the immortal and omniscient God, and then we give him all of our ideas about how we think he should be God and how we think he should bless us and how uh, we think he should make everything else work. Uh, That's kind of a fool's errand, right? To give advice to uh, the God of the universe. So when we approach God, it should be in humility, with with quietness. Um, God loves to hear our prayers. He loves our our worship and thanksgiving. Uh, He likes to know our needs. Uh, but our prayers aren't the news flash that tell him what we need. He, he's well aware of it before we ask. God loves prayer as a healthy um, dialogue. He speaks to us through his word. We speak to him through prayer. That is a, a, a dynamic that God loves. Um, this is talking about approaching God with arrogance rather than in humility, right? If we approach God thinking we've got all the answers and we've got it figured out and I, can't, I just can't wait to tell God how this all should be. Um, that would be the fool's errand where we should have fewer words. Um, praying continually, uh, God says, let your words overflow in thanksgiving and praise. So these two statements can live in the same book um, and they can be non-contradictory, um, just recognizing where each of them falls in their own specific context. Okay. And then lastly, some words on vows. 4 verse 7. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest 
to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Okay. True or false, is it always, it's true or false, it's always sinful to take a vow. We would say false, right? Um, I got a couple examples in court. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You can do that in good conscience. At confirmation, we ask our confirmands to take a vow to be faithful to the Lord until death. Um, doctors take the Hippocratic oath um, that they will strive to do the best good that they can to as many people as possible. Um, your wedding day, you made a vow. Uh, to remain faithful to your spouse until death. Entrance to the military, you take a vow that the government asks you to take the oath of office that our presidents and governors and mayors and, and political leaders take. These are all God-pleasing things. The government uh, has no gospel. They have no ability to just take a person at their word, and so they ask for an oath in important Scenarios where someone's life might be uh, hanging in the balance. Um, it's a good thing to take an oath towards a God-pleasing goal like faithfulness in a marriage, like faithfulness to God himself. It's frivolous oaths that uh, God doesn't delight in. It's dragging God's name into mundane, simple things. It's using God's name to try to make my words more powerful. Um, that's where you veer off the path and into a sinful place. But God does say, when you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. What's the point of that statement? Okay. It's important to him, right? Right. Don't make it frivolously. Don't make an oath and then say, and in 10 years, I'll maybe start making good on that thing. Um, God doesn't, then don't make an oath. If, we, if it's important enough that we would make an oath to the Lord, um, that means it's important enough to the Lord that we follow through with it. An oath, an oath, a vow is important to God, and so we should treat it that way. It should be important to us as well. Um, and we should strive to fulfill our vows right away. We don't put vows that are made to the, to the Lord on our long-term to-do list, uh, but that becomes a part of our life, right? Okay, any questions on these verses from Ecclesiastes 4 and 5? Please. Well, you know, we often say that Solomon is, Solomon is the, the wisest person ever. Mm -hmm. Would it be safe to say that God gave Solomon the greatest gift of wisdom, but that Solomon, in many of his, much of his life, was really not a very wise man? I mean, you, you just go back to the whole 500 wives and 700 concubines. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say to say it. 
I, God made Solomon the wisest man ever. Um, did he always put that wisdom into practice? No. Um, so the way you said it, I'd, I'd be comfortable with that too. That he had a gift that he didn't always utilize to the greatest potential. Um, but then God continued to stay with him and continued to work on his heart and then reignited that fan of, of faith um, so that he could start using that wisdom again and writing the scriptures and reflecting on how meaningless that life was and, and how valuable the life that God has given him now, uh, the life that's connected to him and his promises. Okay, let's sing our uh, closing stanzas here, stanza two and three of Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. Alleluia, bread of heaven, here on earth our food, our stay. Alleluia, hear the sinful, flee to you from day to day. Intercessor, friend of sinners, earth's redeemer, hear our plea. Where the songs of all the sinless sweep across the crystal sea. Alleluia, not as orphans are we left in sorrow now. Alleluia, he is near us, faith believes nor questions how. Though the cloud from sight received him when the forty days were o'er, shall our hearts forget his promise, I am with you evermore. Thanks for being here today and for contributing to our study. We'll be here next week. How much time should money get from chapters 5 and 6? God's blessings on your week.